please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And while you're doing that, I, I want to take this, this moment to thank our pastors, uh, Pastor Ken and Pastor Mike and, and Pastor Steve. I know you're watching uh, for this opportunity to, to bring the, the word of God to you this evening. It's a, it's a privilege for me to do so, and I, I thank you all for that. Um, but Matthew 21 is going to be our text this evening, and I call this, this, this passage, I call it the arrival of the king. Um, the, the entire book, gospel of Matthew, is extremely rich in its content, and uh, normally I'd like to do an entire chapter, but I'm not going to have time tonight. Um, the chapter 21 especially is kind of long. It's over 40 verses long. And so I'm only going to be doing uh, verses 1 through 17 this evening. Um, I want to see what, what Matthew is revealing to us in just those few chapters. Um, we know that their flawless understanding of, of the... The matters of God are, are really just difficult for us to, to understand a lot of times when we're just reading the Bible. Paul says that we see through a, a mirror dimly in a way of explaining our imperfect knowledge of God and our imperfect understanding of him. Well, reading the entire gospel from front to back, we see that it's actually saturated with Old Testament references and quotes. Now, there's so many references and quotes that I'd say the majority of them would be almost verbatim quotes all the way through. Um, the commentator Craig Bloomberg tells us that there's actually 55 quotes in the book of Matthew alone, and that's compared to 65 total Old Testament quotes for the other three Gospels combined. Twelve times in Matthew, we see that he speaks of the Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled, and that's an important word here tonight. Um, beginning in Matthew 21, uh, there's a greater emphasis on this fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Um, and as, as Pastor Ken mentioned this morning in Sunday school, when we read the Old Testament without the New Testament, it, it leaves us wanting. And the same is, is true for the New, New Testament without the Old Testament. If we did that, we would be left wanting as well. So tonight, when we read through these 17 verses of the text, we're going to be looking at a lot of the Old Testament quotes that we pass through on these verses. Um, this morning's scripture reading in the 11 o'clock worship, we read Matthew chapter 2. And uh, I don't know if you were paying attention, but there's a, a tremendous amount of Old Testament quotes just in, in those 18 verses as well. It's very interesting. Um, the passage we're going to read tonight is it's a very familiar passage for us all, I'm sure. Um, it's about the, it's what's been called the triumphal entry of Jesus going into Jerusalem uh, just before, a week before the crucifixion. Uh, and we, we know it today as Palm Sunday. Uh, so let's read 
Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, and I'm going to be reading from the, the ESV, so let's, let's read and open the Word of God. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, put them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the, the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. You, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Well, Jesus, in these first verses, he tells his disciples to go into the village and that they will find a donkey tied with her colt, and he wants them to bring this donkey to him from the village. And often in our sermons, in our, in our churches, that we, when we hear this preaching on this passage, attention is often focused on the divine knowledge that Jesus has to simply say, go and find this donkey exactly where it's going to be tied up and bring it to me as though he knows where it is, and I'm sure he does. But if that's the main thing we draw from this passage, I think we really miss what's going on. My question is, why then does he do this? And Matthew tells us exactly why he does this in verse 4. He says it's to fulfill what is spoken through the prophet Jesus here is fulfilling the messianic prophet prophecy from the, the Old Testament. And, and here it's specifically Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. 
And I left a handout for those of you coming in, so if you have that, you can read along. And I'm going to cite these verses so you don't have to flip through your Bibles to find them. You can just read the page. And if you don't have one, they're on that back table back there. Well, this verse, beginning in chapter 9, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So then Jesus is entering this city, I guess, as what I'd say as a king, but not just as any king. Uh, he's actually entering as the king that we see in Zechariah chapter 9. He is the king who's coming in righteousness, he's coming in peace, and he's coming in gentle humility, and he's mounted on a donkey. And he does this simply by uh, explaining, go get this donkey. All of that is done in, in one sentence for that to happen. Jesus at this moment is still demonstrating that same type of righteousness, peace, and gentle humility as I'm speaking here today. He does this simply by letting this world continue to exist one more minute. He does it so that sinners might have the opportunity to repent and come and put their faith in him alone. Because it's not always going to be like that. Jesus will return. But when he returns, he's not going to be riding on a donkey. He's going to be riding on a horse. A war horse. The Apostle John, he gives us a glimpse of that day when he records in Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16. I know pastors have been preaching on this a lot, so I've taken a lot away with it. But a Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his, his head are, are many diadems. And he has the, a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, his, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Max Donner, who Pastor Steve has often referred to in his Revelation sermons, he tells us that when King Jesus appears like this, he's coming in judgment. Christ is going to return as a conquering king who is going to vindicate his his people, he's going to make war, and he's going to destroy his enemies. And when King Jesus appears like this on a white horse, it's too late. It's too late for you to put your faith and trust in him at that time. If you're not a Christian, there's still hope. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. And I urge you that you run to him 
while he is still King Jesus riding on a donkey, coming in peace, kindness, and in gentle humility. Well, moving to verse 5, it says that, Say to the daughter of Zion, well, the daughter of Zion is a figure of expression referring to Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And looking again closer at these words, it's, it's obviously the first thing that we learn about Jesus here is when we read it, King, he, Jesus, he is king. But is this the image that we have, and I'm talking about us sitting here today and, and watching and listening to the sound of my voice, are, is this the image that we have of Jesus as a king? Is this the image of Jesus riding on a donkey, the image that you would think of when you think of a king? Probably not. And to a believer, I would say most definitely not. An unbeliever, definitely not. And and this really raises a question in my mind as to the identity of Jesus. And it's, it's not a question like the question of, does God exist? There's no real question here that Jesus existed. We know he did. In fact, most people, believers and unbelievers, believe that Jesus did exist some 2,000 plus years ago. Almost every major religion teaches something about who Jesus is, whether he was a a prophet or he was just a good teacher or just a godly man. In fact, Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet. The Mormons, they teach that Jesus is the child born from a literal carnal relationship with Mary. Mary. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the highest created being. Atheists and secularist historians would say that they believe Jesus was just a man, uh, probably a rebel leader, and that was the reason that he was crucified. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus was infinitely more than a prophet or a good teacher or a mere godly man. Uh, These other Jesuses, the Jesus of Islam and the Jesus of the Mormons and the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, these are not the real Jesus. These do not save. They cannot save because they don't exist. They have no ability to forgive sins and they have no ability to make an enemy of God a friend of God. Well, as a king... Jesus is not just a regional king. Uh, He's not an ethnic king. He's not just a king of one ethnic group like like the Jewish people alone. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter where you hear this sermon played. Jesus is king there too. How do I know this? Because looking again at that verse in Zechariah chapter 9... The very next verse, chapter, verse 10, says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. It says he shall speak peace to the nations. Jesus didn't come to establish his throne in Jerusalem. No. 
His dominion is from sea to sea. It's worldwide. It's universal. He's the king of every nation. He's the king of every tribe and tongue. We live and act, you know, in this world very loosely uh, is a polite way of saying it. So I'm asking, I, I want to know, is, uh, do we live and act knowing then that Jesus is king? You know, because there's things in this world that we encounter every day as soon as we walk out of these doors that affect us. And we seem to forget that Jesus is king. Whether it's his, our job, or whether it's worries about money, or worries about our families, where our next meal is going to come from, or the comfort that we have at home. In the United States, for example, comfort and ease can easily become our king. Our lazy boy can be our throne, and our TV can be our altar. So I I would say that we need to resist the comforts and conveniences of this world so that they do not have rule over us. COVID, it's made it very easy for us to stay at home and watch church. And granted, watching church online, it absolutely has its purpose, its place, and its advantages. Um, we, I'm not speaking about those who have physical abilities and disabled, uh, disabilities that, that cannot come to church. That's not what I'm speaking about. We, we have those in our own congregation. I want you to know that we love you and we pray for you and we always desire to have your presence here, but we totally understand why you're not and that is not what I'm speaking about. But what I am suggesting is that if we're sitting at home watching church because it's convenient, because it's convenient to stay in our pajamas, it's, it's comfortable to sit on our couch and watch a sermon on television, perhaps we, we need to realize that's not worshiping. We need to resist and fight against our creature comforts if we really believe that Jesus is king. So in the context of Zechariah chapter 9, 9 and 10, Jesus is a universal king. He's over everything from sea to sea and That is how he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey as a universal global king coming in peace, in gentleness, and humility. But looking down to verse 9, it reads, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quote, again, from the Old Testament. Psalm 118. And it's interesting because the entire chapter, chapter 21 of Matthew, it begins and ends with quotes from Psalm 118. Here, this is verse 26 of 118. And you go down to Matthew 21, verse 42, it's a quote from verse, uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. Well, here the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, who is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord? A quick look at Psalm 18, 118 speaks of the, the righteous sufferer who God delivers from oppressors, and as a result of his deliverance, he enters into the, the, the gate of the Lord, and entering through the gate of the Lord, and a, a blessing is pronounced on him as the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. And this is the one that becomes the chief cornerstone, which is what Jesus says about himself at the end of the chapter 21 in verse 42. But let me read you the first two verses of Psalm 118, 24 through 26, which is in your, your outline there. This is the day that the Lord made has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So first, we see Jesus coming in and entering Jerusalem as a king. And now we also see him coming in as a suffering servant of this Psalm 118, who comes in the name of Yahweh, who will be vindicated by Yahweh and who will enter through the gate of the Lord. And coming in the name of the Lord, he will be blessed. But why is he blessed? Well, it's because he is the salvation of Yahweh. In Psalm 118, they're saying, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And here in Matthew, what are the people shouting? Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us, O son of David. So Jesus comes to this shouting of Hosanna to the son of David. This quote of, from Psalm 118, it's, it's tying it all together here. It's, it's saying that here is the salvation here is the rescue of Yahweh, Jesus, the King. Well, we also learn in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus, he's the true temple. Look at verses 12 through 14. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Well, this takes place after he's entered uh, the, into Jerusalem, and he's, he's gone into the, the temple grounds. But I don't really think we appreciate what's really going on here in the temple. Remember, the temple at this time is the place where the sins of the people, both individually and nationally, are forgiven. It's, it's the place that allows for the, the Jewish nation to have communion with God. It's, the temple is, is the place where God is always present, in the Garden of Eden, that was a garden temple, but it never says that God dwelt there. Um, he only visited Adam and Eve. Um, and later he walked with Enoch and Noah, but he didn't dwell with them. And Abraham, he called the, his friend, but he, he never dwelled with Abraham. The first temple that was built was built in the wilderness by Moses. And this is the first time that God had provided a place for himself to dwell with man. 
and later it became the, the temple that Solomon built. So the temple is really the heart of the entire Jewish theocracy uh, and the religion of the time. But there's two things that are happening here. The first is destructive. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables. And the second thing he's doing is restoration. <coughs> Verse 14 says that he healed the blind and the lame. Uh, most of the time when we hear these passages preached on, again, the spotlight is, is really put on what's called the, the righteous anger that Jesus had. And it's true he was probably very angry about these things. But I think that's a, an overly simplistic interpretation of what I call a flannel interpretation. And if that's the big takeaway that we have, I think it, that we miss the point. Uh, Jesus is angry. Uh, but Jesus has done something much more significant here. Jesus is taking lordship over the temple. Jesus has taken authority over the temple. He's doing it because it's his divine right to do it. Uh, when he goes into the temple, he's not going in as a trembling worshiper. He's not going in as a religious functuary. He's, he's going in as the proprietor, as the owner. He's going in as the Lord. Jesus here is overturning tables and he's driving people out. He's driving them out of the house of God. But at the same time, he's allowing unclean people to enter in. The blind and the lame, uh, they're now allowed to enter, restored and redeemed. In Genesis, when, when Adam sinned, the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And the man was driven out of the garden temple and the tree of life. But in John 17, Jesus said a prayer for us. He said that they may, he prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then in Revelation, we find this restoration again. It's here man is welcomed back with, again, access to the tree of life, answering this prayer in John 17. But also, there's two Old Testament passages in verses 12 through 14 that are being referred to. The first is Isaiah 56, and the second is Jeremiah 7. And Isaiah is being referred to very specifically for two reasons. First, it's the coming kingdom of the God is the context, and Jesus is putting himself in the place of that coming king. And second, that the context of Isaiah 56 is that it's universal in scope. Uh, again, it's not just referring to the Israelites. Uh, let me read Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, starting in verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain I will, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus has overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple, and he, he quotes a passage that's directly related to the temple, which is pointing to the coming kingdom of God, and that there is this, is, this coming kingdom, it's not limited to the Israelite people, but it's universal in scope. But also in verses 12 through 14, Jesus also quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Well, I'm going to read a little more than that. Um, Jeremiah, I think context is very helpful here. So I'm going to read Jeremiah starting in verse 3 all the way through 15 to give a fuller context. So starting in verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the, the, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come to stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that I call by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. That is the background of verses 12 through 14, of turning a house of prayer into a den of robbers, all the while turning over these tables. Jesus is giving a devastating warning not only are the tables being overturned, but the temple is being overturned. It's a warning that, that the temple is going to be destroyed. This one sentence invokes the whole context that judgment is coming and the temple will be destroyed. And let this be a lesson to us. That we cannot place our trust in anyone or anything or any place other than Jesus. We cannot go and live our lives six days a week any way we want. And then on Sundays, come and say, I'm safe. I'm delivered. I go to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. 
Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I'm delivered. That will not save you. Faith for our salvation in anything other than Jesus is insufficient, inadequate, unsatisfactory, and unacceptable. Anything other than Jesus cannot save you. It's Jesus alone. Well, additionally, this chapter in Matthew, if we were to continue to read it, we'd see an incident with a fig tree. And I believe that this fig tree is tied directly to the idea of what's going on in the temple. It, it seems a bit strange to me that we would go from this triumphant entry as the king and going into the temple and turning over all these tables and chasing out all these people and healing the lame and the blind and then go out and, and have this, this, this incident with a fig tree. It just seems a little out of place. So I'll, reading it, I always ask myself, what's going on? How does this fit? So how does it fit? Uh, well, let's read verses 18 and 19 really quickly, and I'll tell you what I think is going on. Verse 18 says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, scholars have actually suggested that this incident with the fig tree is a, what they call a, a parable that was enacted into a miracle. And what Jesus is doing in the temple, he's doing the same thing to this fig tree. Uh, he sees the, the appearance of physical life in this fig tree as he's walking. He sees its outward leaves. And he desires, and he, he goes to this fig tree to, to find some fruit. But he finds nothing, and he curses it, and it immediately withers up. Likewise, Jesus goes into the temple, and he sees the outward appearance of spiritual life. And he goes there to find some fruit, but he doesn't find any fruit. So he symbolically announces the temple's doom by driving out those buying and selling and doing business in it. So the fig tree, it becomes a, a living time, real parable for what he's doing in the temple. Um, it, it's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel if they don't repent. Um, and additionally, the fig tree in incident is very interesting because it echoes... Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11 through 13, is very striking here, and I'm going to read that. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush, therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would, ha would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them, 
has passed away from them. Jesus seems to be deliberately referring to this Jeremiah text. The cursing of the fig tree is actually a picture of what Jeremiah is painting uh, that both Israel and the temple are under judgment. Remember, the temple is a place where God's presence is. Uh, It's a place where the people can come and make their offerings and get forgiveness for their sins and remain in fellowship and communion with God. But if the temple is destroyed, what's going to happen? Well, by his action, his words, Jesus has declared his lordship over the temple. And by this pronouncement of judgment, he sets himself up as the true temple. He is what the temple in the Old Testament has been pointing to the whole time. Everything that's been going on in the Old Testament temple has been pointing us to Jesus. How? Well, the temple is where, again, Israel's God dwelled. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In him, that is Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the incarnation of God himself as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And the temple is where the sacrifices were made, where sins were taken care of, where they could be forgiven, so they could have unbroken fellowship with God. But Jesus himself has now taken on this function. In verse 14, it says that he he healed the blind and the lame when they came to him in the temple. All worship is now being reconstituted around Jesus. The temple was the center of worship, the place of God's presence, the place of forgiveness of sins, but it's no longer needed because the reality has come. Jesus has become the center of worship. Jesus is the very presence of God. Jesus is where forgiveness of sins is found. And whereas the lame and the blind were excluded from the temple, now Jesus, in Jesus, they're healed and they're welcomed in. Sin is only forgiven in Jesus as well. Jesus has become the sacrifice. He's become the offering, the unblemished sacrifice for our sin. On him are laid the sins of all those who believe in him. He entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. The donkey bears the physical burdens of men, but the spiritual burdens of burdens of man are laid on him, burdens that we could never bear. And God the Father punishes him instead of us. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we don't need to look for a place for the forgiveness of sin to have communion with God. We need to look to a person. We need to look to Jesus. He is the true temple. The physical temple just pointed to him. So he declares the judgment on the earthly temple and, the, and on the empty religiosity 
of the Israelites. And he declares its destruction and he, he takes on the role of the temple himself. So Jesus is the king. He's the one that comes in the name of the Lord. And he's the true temple. It's because he is God. But now we come to verse 15 of Matthew 21, which reads, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? The text says the chief priests and scribes were indignant. They're angry and they're outraged. They won't tolerate it anymore. They're done. They approach Jesus and they ask him, Do you hear what these are saying? Well, this is a rhetorical question. They knew he could hear what they were saying. They were asking the question to imply that he better do something about it. He better make them stop. He better make them tell them this isn't true. Well, Jesus responded to them with one word. When they said, do you hear what these are saying? His response is, yes. And then he quotes another Old Testament passage. Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And this response of the psalm to the chief priests and scribes was probably not what they were expecting to hear. The quotation from the psalm isn't justifying the shouts of praise simply because they were coming from children. And we often get stuck on that. Uh, you know, often we hear just the first part of that psalm. All we hear is out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, and then it stops. And again, I think if we do that, we miss the entire point. It's because it's the rest of the quote. It's the rest of that, that verse. That's the offense to them. This quote from Psalm 8 is telling the priests and scribes why the children are saying what they're saying. The quote from Psalm 8 is about Jesus' identity, who he really is. And let me read it. It's um, the first two verses of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Psalm 8, it's a whole and complete reference to God, to Yahweh. And Jesus is applying this to himself. Jesus is telling that, them that everything that they're seeing, everything that has been happening in Matthew, Matthew 21 up to this point, his coming in on a donkey, the quote from Psalm 18, 118, the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, uh, the overturning of the tables and the healing of the lame and the blind. Jesus is telling them, I can do all of this because I am Yahweh. The prophet Isaiah, he prophesied that there would be a day one day when Yahweh would return to Zion as king. And there's a lot of Old Testament verses about this. Um, I'm only going to point out the one here. 
Isaiah chapter 25, verses 9 and 10, that say, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. In Matthew 21, Yahweh is returning to Zion in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come to bring both salvation and judgment. Salvation to those who repent and put their faith and trust in him alone. And judgment for those who don't. When the chief priests and scribes say, can you hear what they're saying? In other words, do something about this. Make them stop. Jesus is saying, haven't you read? This is about me. They can say that because I am Yahweh. I am God. So who is Jesus? He's not Michael the archangel. He's not merely a prophet. He's not a political rebel. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords because he is God incarnate. He in himself has taken the place of the temple so that the forgiveness of sins can be only found in him. Not in a building in Jerusalem, but only in the person of Jesus himself. So look to the true Jesus daily, and I urge others to seek him while there is, to, there is still time. Because when he comes riding on his white horse, it's too late. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word for preserving your revelation of yourself for us that you have not left us to wonder about who you are. You have given us the truth and in that we can see our Savior. We can see Jesus, who he really is. Our faith is not in the things that we have or in the country we live or in the things that surround that. We put our faith in Jesus alone, in God himself, God incarnate, and only him. We thank you that you, are, you were willing to leave your glory for the humiliation of coming in the form of a man. You were obedient even to death, death on a cross. I thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We glorify you. We love you. Because you are king, the universal king over all things. You rule now and forever. And now not, not one thing is done without your will. We thank you and praise you that you did bring salvation. And that you are the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that it was you who we look to for our forgiveness of our sins, removing them as far as the east is from the west forever. Thank you, Jesus. You are God, and we proclaim this truth openly. Help us to daily live in the light of that fact. 
To you be the glory forever and ever. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.